Welcome back to Crisis Management, Columbus Business First podcast on seeing a business through the coronavirus pandemic. I'm reporter Carrie Ghosh. Today's guest is Mike Abrams, CEO of the Ohio Hospital Association, the trade group that represents 190 hospitals and 14 health systems in the state. It also has some specialty hospital members, but our talk focused on full service hospitals, which are facing a more than billion dollar hole in their collective budgets as a result of the pandemic, even after the federal stimulus. Business has been slowly rebounding since non-emergency procedures resumed, and despite rapidly rising COVID-19 cases in Ohio, capacity remains steady. We talk about what might be the after effects of the pandemic, including whether some hospitals in Ohio might be acquired or simply not survive. During our talk, Abrams referenced a lot of company names and a couple acronyms, so let's do a quick rundown. In Michigan, Beaumont, the largest health system there, and he also mentions later on McLaren Health System from Michigan. There's Summa Health in Akron and Advocate Aurora Healthcare, which resulted from the mergers of what had been the largest systems in Illinois and Wisconsin. Interestingly, that system now is exploring a merger with Beaumont, so you can see how these trends are accelerating. I referred to Nelsonville kind of in passing, and that is Ohio Health's Nelsonville outpatient campus that it built after closing the former doctor's hospital there. And later on, Abrams refers to UPMC, which stands for University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. We talked about the dynamics of health systems crossing state lines and many other topics, including what he really thinks about masks and his hopes for the Blue Jackets season. Thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome to Business First. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest here is Mike Abrams, who is CEO of the Ohio Hospital Association. I've just been playing around in the uh, statewide uh, pay- Paycheck Protection Program data, looking at Central Ohio's healthcare industry and how it was affected. And there's some surprises in there you'd think oh, you know, home health care, that has to go on. Why are there so many home health care agencies? Uh, and I talked to the largest one. They said, well, no, a large part of home health care is people recovering from ambulatory surgery. So just a, a lot of things that you think this industry is the most essential industry for responding to COVID-19, but it's also flying with two arms tied behind its back. That's, I've mixed many metaphors there. So, uh, so the collective hit to the state's hospitals is greater than $3 billion. $3.3 billion as well. It keeps, keeps going up by the week. A little under $2 billion in direct federal assistance so far. Correct. And I found 12 small, rural, 25-bed hospitals around the state, none in our immediate area, that also, on top of CARES Act funding, got PPP, which is another part of the CARES Act. Just wanted to check in with you on how the recovery is going, first of all, uh, now that things are coming back online. Are, are you seeing things stabilize? Are there any hospitals in the state that are going under because of this? Or do they feel, as it stands right now, that they, they can see a, a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, as you might imagine, I know you're you're very well schooled in health economics. So 
I know that you would have observed that there are some hospitals that even prior to this were really in precarious economic uh, situation. So you add to that a, an, an economic assault like what we had, and I am worried that there will be additional closures of hospitals in our state. Basically right now, given that the loss was about 3.3 billion and the aid was just under 2 billion, there's a gap of about 1.4 billion that is not likely to be filled in very much further. There may be some down the road, but I think you are going to see hospitals really carefully examining their path. Is there, is there a path short of closure? And many of them will find uh, alternatives to closure. None of them will be ideal. I mean, some of the things you can do if you're in a difficult economic circumstance and you're a hospital is not deliver babies anymore. You can uh, stop providing uh, mental health care because those are uh, uh, terribly important for the community, but they're not enviable business aspects of your portfolio. The bigger issue that I see that I don't want to get lost in this conversation, this necessary conversation about the economics of our uh, situation, is that extraordinarily real impact on patients. When we shut down electives, I think I don't like the word elective because it makes it sound like it is a choice. Yeah. Yeah, that it's not very important. I want to just give you a couple examples of things that do not get done when electives are shut down. For example, there are people with herniated cervical discs high in their spine. And that is somewhat safe to delay. But if that is delayed beyond what it should be, and there's an art and a science to assessing when that delay has gone on too long, they could have permanent loss of function, permanent loss of bowel and bladder function. Another example is if you have a herniated disc low, you know, in your lumbar spine, and that goes untreated, it's an it's a elective procedure, but if it goes untreated beyond what it should, you could have permanent drop foot. You know, you see people who lose that function. So these are not unimportant procedures, just even though the word is, is not a perfect match. We are committed to making sure that there is safe access to those procedures. One of our concerns is that people are erroneously kind of delaying these procedures because they think they're anxious or nervous about going into the uh, hospital setting. And they shouldn't be. I mean, hospitals are extraordinarily safe places to receive care right now. And uh, we are really trying to message that, that people who have conditions that should be treated should see about getting those treated. What has been the, the status from, from your perspective of the workforce? How healthy have hospitals been able to keep their workers who are treating this disease from catching it themselves? Did the right. people do its job? Well, I, I, as you know, that was a, one of the early concerns, and that's why we quit doing electives, is because we were very concerned with supply chain and the ability to make sure that our employees are being kept safe with proper gowns and masks and gloves and all of the supplies that you need to make sure that healthcare personnel are safe in their jobs. So I feel like we've done a great job, our members have done a great job of uh, ensuring employee safety. You know, when you talk about employment, though, you 
read the headlines and made some of the headlines yourself about some of the furloughs and uh, that aspect of this because nearly 5%, a little more than 5% actually, of the 260,000 people in Ohio who work for hospitals were furloughed for a period. Most of those are back. You know, that was a really uh, difficult decision for these hospitals to make. When electives were shut down, you frankly did not have as much to do. But many hospitals were able to keep the employee base going anyway, but plenty of them had to, uh, had to lay employees off. In a lot of the state's counties, that that hospital would be the largest employer, correct? Yeah, it is. The local hospital is the largest employer in uh, several Ohio counties. And so not only is it necessary, as you pointed out, uh, during times of pandemic or, or um, trauma, tragedy, but it's a necessary economic engine to an awful lot of communities. The largest employer, for example, in Cuyahoga County is the Cleveland Clinic. And the second largest employer in Cuyahoga County is University Hospitals. Wow. So when we talk about the path forward and you're saying that they, they could be facing some unpleasant choices, do you think one of those would be accelerating the pace of consolidation? Yeah, I do. I do. I think, you know, uh, eight years ago when I first started my job, we saw large systems acquiring smaller hospitals. And now we are seeing large systems acquire other large systems in addition to consolidation with the smaller hospitals. You saw Beaumont, the largest system of Michigan, acquire SUMA, you know, a sizable system in Northeast Ohio. That deal was called off, but it was just another example. You're seeing it happen in uh, Wisconsin and Illinois with the Advocate and Aurora uh, systems combining. So I think the pace of consolidation could be maybe temporarily slowed, but I think uh, just because of the turbulent economic uh, time that we're in, but I do think when things settle out a bit more economically and stabilize, I do think you will see consolidations pick up. That will be the path that a lot of hospitals choose. I should say that a lot of hospitals are proudly independent and you know them, I mean, they're in your area and they do very well. I mean, there are some hospitals who will not consolidate nor will they need to, you know, there is a, a, they do very well in the market and in the community that they're in and their community is supportive. So, but I do think net net, you're going to see that activity pick up. O overnight, there was rapid and widespread adoption of telehealth overcoming you know, huge barriers of reluctance on both sides. And with the wild card of insurers deciding that yes, this provides value or not, do you see that staying permanent? And do you see that as a boost to hospitals or an adjustment in how they think about capital expenditures? You know, let's spend more on computers than bricks and mortar. H how does it reshape the industry? Honestly, uh, that is such a great, question, and uh, I think we could do a whole seminar on that, but I think it is going to be impossible to get that toothpaste back in the tube. I think what we are learning is that prior to this, we had, frankly, reluctant providers in some cases. We had reluctant patients. We had reluctant payers. We had some, you know, providers that are kind of out on the cutting edge and very comfortable and successful doing it. But this kind of blew all of that away. So now we are seeing 
patients embrace telehealth, we know that in many cases, it's safer to consume healthcare services over telehealth. I think we have seen providers increase the pace at, at which we are adopting the technology, physicians and nurses being more comfortable examining patients carefully through telehealth. And we're seeing payers kind of come to the table and say, you know, where we might have been reluctant before, it feels like this is probably a good place for our health system to go. I think the gravitational pull will be toward more telehealth, not away from it, which I think will be a really good thing, especially if you're in rural America, rural Ohio, where it's much more difficult to drive to see a dermatologist or you know, a mental health provider that can provide very effective services over the uh, telehealth technology. And so I think at net-net, this will be one of the very few positives that come out of our COVID. I am not concerned that our physical capacity to uh, have enough beds and ventilators and supplies and equipment, I don't really think that is going to be problematic for the duration of this pandemic. I really don't. What I feel like, you know, early in the process, we were so building the plane while it was in air uh, with dashboards and various things to get our heads around what we have, what we need. But now we have important dashboards that show us every single day where we are with every single necessary supply. We have technology now. The Battelle technology has now cleaned and put 400,000 masks back into reuse. So some of the things that were being kind of put together early on, those are the reasons that I feel now like we kind of know what we're dealing with and have the ability to manage even more than what we are being called on to manage today. If, God forbid, hospitalizations do start spiking following this recent spike in cases, and if there are either localized or even more widespread resumption of pausing uh, overnight stays, is the recovery so fragile? What would that mean? Is the recovery too fragile or could hospitals get through round two of shutdown? Well, I think, you know, there is a fragility, an economic fragility with that. So again, the reason we, we stopped doing electives originally was not because of capacity management, that we didn't have enough beds. It was mostly because of N95 masks and other supplies, but especially N95s. So uh, that's, if you'll recall, you know, we were bringing N95s in from dentist offices and veterinarians and construction industry and other places that that properly utilized this uh, that were now necessary for the healthcare system. I feel like there are things we could do to cause the apocalypse. And, and if that were to happen, then indeed we would have all kinds of closures and it would be economically very fragile uh, to use your word. My sense though is that culturally we have come through a lot of that and we now don't find it weird to go to the grocery store and mask and do some of the things that really we simply have to do. You know, uh, I was speaking to the Ohio Auto Dealers Association and one of the questions that they had was what, what did I think would happen with the college football season? 
And, you know, there are a lot of events like that that are just not a good idea. To have a bunch of people cheek to jowl screaming at the field is an invitation to just have this, this virus explode in our community. So I think our population has kind of come through that and now doesn't like it, but understands that we're going to have to watch golf on TV and there won't be crowds there. Or I'm a big Blue Jackets fan, if you see my little towel back there, but uh, so hopefully there'll be a Stanley Cup uh, awarded this year, but there won't be crowds there. And we go to the Blue Jackets games. We really miss that. But I think I have grieved it and I am committed to doing everything I can and, and the organization can to kind of make sure that we don't have apocalyptic type scenarios. I want to sum up here, not, not ending it, but I just want to sum up where we are now. That while the recovery is proceeding, you as an association believe some of your members might not come through this or might have to seek acquisition. If there is a second shutdown or uh, a second health order that curtails some procedures, that would cause even further damage. But you don't see that coming. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I do think that different hospitals will identify different paths. And I think at the end of the day, when this story is written, there will be hospitals that don't survive it. And there, as, as you know, there were closures before we were really deeply uh, involved in this. Uh, and there have been closures in other states in the country. So I don't think, uh, or I'm quite sure Ohio is not immune to the uh, harsh economics of uh, pandemics like this. So uh, I do think that that will, that will be a reality in our state as well. What happens for those communities? Do you see an expansion of, say, a Nelsonville type freestanding ER with comprehensive outpatient that replace? Because there's still people living in those counties who need health care. Well, I think that's, it's going to be a time when we see real innovation. And yes, I think the Nelsonville type model might ex be exactly what we see. And there are other places in Ohio where they have stopped doing inpatient. You know, I was noticing too that, was it, is it Walgreens that announced that they were putting the uh, clinics in, I think 400 different stores throughout the country, primary care clinics staffed with physicians and nurses and social workers. So I think, you know, in some of those communities, uh, you might go to Walgreens to get, you know, supplies and medicines and things, but you might also go there to their urgent care clinic. That may be uh, part of what happens. I also believe, let's go back to, you know, what we were talking about a few minutes ago, that in some of those communities, there is going to be robust use of telehealth. Uh, I know that broadband can be a limiter in, in some Ohio communities, and that's going to have to be addressed. And that will be okay, I think, with the community and with uh, the health system. Now, there are health conditions that really are exacerbated if, if you live far away from those kinds of services, such as stroke and brain injury and trauma. So it's my hope that people, as we are being innovative, that we can kind of reflect the fact that there is a certain level of trauma care that's pretty necessary throughout the um, state. As we look to disparities in health and how 
those have been exacerbated by the pandemic. What can your industry do? Do hospitals need to reshape themselves to better address those disparities? I mean, you've been doing community health assessments. You've noted the disparities. They're only getting worse in the pandemic. What needs to be done? Honestly, I think we are going to, we as a community, including hospitals, but including other players on the field or assets, we're all going to have to get better with uh, care coordination, for example. I mean, why is infant mortality such, why is there such disparity with that particular metric in, in our state? And I think we as hospitals and health systems, as well as every other actor in the economy need to be kind of intellectually interested in that and then start evaluating what can you do as a church, as a, as a grocery store, as a hospital or health system to address that. And there are lots and lots of examples, including COVID, where this is, where the uh, disparity is just more and more evidence. So uh, we do need to all get a lot more interested in what the solution is. I think we've been quite perfect at defining the problem and providing data and statistics about the problem. And then we scratch our heads. And frankly, we are doing a lot in the area of infant mortality as well as maternal mortality and morbidity. But I think you're going to see everybody get busier and double down in those efforts. Um, you mentioned Beaumont uh, coming from Michigan. Uh, in researching the PPP loans, I stumbled across a Southeast Ohio hospital that had, I think in December, as recently as December, a management agreement from West Virginia University's health system. And I've been kind of keeping tabs on for a couple of years, King's Daughters out of Kentucky has been inching up into Portsmouth and, and beyond. How much more will we be seeing out of state and perhaps even for-profit for health systems coming more and more into Ohio? You are dead on. I mean, I think that is uh, absolutely going to happen. You know, the Beaumont deal was called off, but McLaren, another large system from Michigan, has acquired a hospital up St. Luke's up in Maumee, Ohio. And I think, you know, the political lines of health systems are being erased. So it will, it will actually surprise me if that doesn't happen. I think you could see UPMC from Pennsylvania uh, express interest in Ohio. I think you could see Henry Ford Health from Michigan express interest in Ohio, maybe the advocate system from Illinois. So um, I do think that there are, actually those are all excellent health systems around the country. They're just not domiciled here. Uh, ProMedica from uh, Toledo has hospitals in Michigan. So the state lines really are being ignored when health systems are kind of looking for what their next moves are economically. What other innovations do you see coming uh, in the path forward? Uh, any opportunities that this catastrophe has brought? I think we as a society, in, in fact, I, I was wondering this with someone the other day. I wonder if other diseases are going to be less frequent because of this. We should have been washing our hands better a long time ago. It shouldn't have taken a global pandemic to teach us to wash our hands. I think forevermore, we're not going to find it unusual 
to see people masking. If they feel a little like they're coming down with something, they might mask. Now, just a couple months ago, we would have thought that was awfully strange, and now it's not strange at all. So I wonder if, for example, the influenza season next year, maybe not be quite, we might see less flu because people are washing their hands better, staying out of crowds. So I think one of the things that we hopefully will see come from this is just a better sense of how you take care of community health, not just exercise and eat right for yourself and don't smoke and do all the things we know we're supposed to do and not do, but how do you kind of participate in the broader community's health, healthiness? And hopefully that will be something that we can extend well beyond when we emerge from this pandemic into whatever that new normal is. Uh, have you been distressed at all by the idea that wearing a mask or not has become somehow a political issue instead of a stopping spit droplets that you know a camera can show going through the air issue? <laughs> I should have had this available. I will look for this and uh, send you a picture of it. But I used to have on my office wall a magazine cover from the 1920s, I think. And it said, spit spreads death. And that was just, it was a message. It was a sign that they knew in the early 1900s that you shouldn't spit on the sidewalk. And so I am concerned that people view it as a right to kind of endanger the community health. It is not a right. We used to say in the old smoking debates that your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. So you're not allowed to contaminate the atmosphere that I try to function in and maintain my own health in. And I think we have to almost adopt that same thinking with how we protect people by masking ourselves, you know, and how you protect me by masking yourself. So I don't understand how things like that get politicized. I, I would say the same thing about vaccinations. Like, what? I mean, that is not debatable. Uh, vaccines are good, important things. Florid, uh, fluoridating the water supply, it's a good thing. So uh, I do think that we need to kind of burden ourselves with being credible sources for truths about community health and public health. And that means when something is not advised, we need to be able to confess that as well. But um, I hope that, you know, when we reach a little bit more of a baseline that people will not view this through any kind of political lens at all. Do you think on the more hopeful side, do you think that one outcome of this is increased compassion? Sorry, I'm getting away from business there. <laughs> no, I mean, it's an interesting conversation. I think that's possible. And I think, you know, you could say that the social unrest in our community and throughout the country is also kind of helping us understand what it means to be compassionate toward people who are different from us or who are in a different economic circumstance or a different social circumstance uh, that people need to be caring toward each other. So I don't know, that's an interesting kind of social question, but it would be nice if that was uh, kind of a, a positive outcome from this. And then cycling back to where we began, 
other than the obvious question of needing more money, what are your legislative priorities for what's left of the year? Well, I think we are uh, going to need to be interested in what we can do. And I don't know that the solution is legislative, but undoubtedly there is a role for elected leaders. But what we can do through public policy and our own private actions to address the disparity in uh, health outcomes, I think that would be something that we need to be interested in how we deploy state policy and, uh, and our own resources to address that. So that'll be something that we really do try to drill down in ourselves. Our board is gonna be taking that issue up in, in great depth in a couple weeks. Okay. Um, anything else I forgot to ask you about that you guys have really uh, kept your eye on? Well, I guess one of the other dynamics that I find interesting is how a plurality of cases in our state now are in the 20 to 29 age range, which I find absolutely fascinating. And that age range has continued to kind of fall. So I think, you know, as we look at transmission and we look at the reopening of colleges, for example, and uh, the uh, congregate living in dormitories and things like that, which our son is a junior at UD. You know, I've watched the UD leadership struggle with this and come up with really very, very sound recommendations and policies. At some point, we're gonna to have to rely on 18 to 24 year old young adults being compliant. I have some concern about that. But so I think as we watch the age rate, the average age drop, and like I said, now a plurality is in the 20 to 29 age range, uh, we're gonna to have to be really vigilant about things that are happening in that age range to invite transmission and, and really work on those. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking all the time. Talk under happier circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> I, that would be my pleasure. Thanks for giving me some of your time. All right, all you stay safe over there.